Hello. Hi. Hi. Welcome to not just a new episode of the Brio in the Box podcast, but we're calling this a new season. Season three. Welcome to season three, 2024. New setup. New year. Me. We're beside each other. Yeah. Right now. We're trying something different. Hi. Hi. <laughs> we're snuggling in season three. Yeah. Also got us a new background. That's digital. You can't see that. I know. Yay. <laughs> <laughs> got a new intro. You see the new intro? Oh, sweet. Yeah. yeah. So... We decided season three, we've done lots of topics and put lots of time into researching and, you know, presenting all kinds of interesting things, but we're going to make season three community driven. Mm -hmm. So we get asked questions all the time in the gym during a class. Hey, what are your thoughts on this? Hey, what about that? And we just don't always have time in the go, go, go of a workout to answer them properly. So why not make this the platform to do yeah. that? Or it's like a really good topic that we would like to discuss with more people, but it's only me and one other person or mm -hmm. you and one other person. So it's kind of nice if everybody has an opportunity to hear about some of these things. Yeah, yeah. So great questions basically all coming from you guys, coming mm -hmm. from within the community. And on that note, so ask us anything during the week. You can also like comment below on any of these YouTube podcasts on things you would like us to answer for next time. And every couple of weeks, we'll just collect them and do basically an AMA or AUA. Ask us anything. Ask us anything. Ask us anything. Also just going to do like a roundup of interesting things that we, yeah. you and I both read a lot listen to a lot of podcasts. I'm out and about in the world of other CrossFit gyms and coaches and all that kind of stuff. And just, I'm going to try to find more little nuggets, just interesting things mm -hmm. to share from all of the different. Yeah. I've gotten away from the zombie novels. So <laughs> my brain is a little bit fuller than it used to be. Yeah. Why don't we, let's just do a, what's the last book you read? What was the last book I read? I read the Johan Hari's new book. It's about attention loss, like our, our, our inability to stay focused on things. Mm -hmm. It was really good. He always does a bit of an experiment with himself and he, he went without any kind of technology, any kind of internet for a month, uh -huh. I believe, or six weeks or something like that. And just went to this little town and just lived in this little town with no internet. Mm -hmm. And talked about like how much of an addiction it is and then got really deep into like how it's affecting our kids and our ability to do our jobs and all kinds of stuff. So yeah, it was really good. Yeah. Interesting. We both are big fans of his previous two books, mm -hmm. Chasing the Scream on the War on Drugs and Lost Connections, yeah. which was kind of on depression, you know, lack of social connections and humans. So he's an interesting dude, writes on like different topics. Lots of authors kind of get stuck in the same um, yeah. lane. He's but. like a investigative reporter kind of mm -hmm. guy. So he'll, yeah, he'll just spend like years on one topic and then write a book about it. And he, he does a really good job with his writing. Yeah. Interesting. Okay. So speaking of inability to focus. <laughs> How many books do you have on the go like right now? Six or seven. But I really, I did not accomplish this goal, but I, I tried to make myself finish all the books that I had on the go before I let myself buy new books. Yeah. It didn't work, but I did finish some <laughs> books. So the ones I most recently finished... I read one called Unreasonable Hospitality mm. by Will Guidara. I'm not sure that's how you say his name. The hospitality director of Eleven Madison Park, which was a five-star Michelin restaurant, voted the best restaurant in the world eventually. And it's kind of all about how they made the, the best restaurant in the world. And they're just unreasonable hospitality mm -hmm. is a great name for it because the lengths they went to to serve their guests in that restaurant were really over the top. But lots of good like life lessons and business lessons and stuff in there. Yep. I finally finished reading Stephen Guillenay's The Hungry Brain. He's a neuroscientist, really tries to make the argument that obesity is driven 
by disruptions in the hypothalamus and the appetite regulation part of the brain versus some of the other people that I also like to follow that talk about obesity being something that happens in the periphery. It's a hormonal disruption in excess insulin or whatever. Um, I've listened to him on some debates and podcasts before and did not really like him, to be honest, but I I like to explore and understand the sides of people I don't necessarily agree with. Uh, But I actually really enjoyed his book, and I think he made a very coherent case for his side, and so I've come to appreciate his contribution to the understanding of obesity more than I did before. So I'm glad I was open-minded to read a book from someone I wasn't initially a fan of. And then, you know, six other books I have on the go. Peter Atiyah's oh, Outlive. Yeah, we, both, we both read that one. I'm not done that one, but I've been <clears throat> chugging away. I'm reading Gary Tobb's new book, Rethinking Diabetes. That Those are always, that's a big effort. Very yeah. dense, his books, but very, I, very well researched. I struggle to get through any of his stuff. It's a little bit above my pay grade. <laughs> yeah. Kelly Starrett's Born to Move. Kelly and Juliet Starrett wrote a book together. I've been doing their little mobility challenge. Mm-hmm. I'd have to look in my Kindle. What else I have on the go? Oh, a Simon Sinek book. Start with why. That was one recommended by one of my coworkers. I asked what the most recent book you read was, and you gave me like 38. 38 <laughs> book recommendations. Sorry, I just said one. What is the single most recent <laughs> book you finished? <laughs> Welcome to the inside of my brain. Yeah. Okay. I live with her folks. Okay, so let's let's get out of my brain and let's get into the, the community's brain and yes. the things that are on your mind. Yes. What are some of the questions that have been asked lately? Here's a good one, and so I'm going to flip it to you. Yes, yeah, so we both recently had people ask us about this one separately. They don't even know each other, but they were asking about peptides. Mm-hmm. So peptides are something that they've been around for a long time, but they've only yeah. recently been starting getting a lot more mainstream momentum. Yeah, so somebody goes, what do you know about peptides? Yeah. So, David, what do you know about peptides? I don't know a lot. So the majority of the information I've gathered is because there'll be a report of a CrossFitter popping for a certain substance. And I'm like, what the hell is that? And so I'll look it up and I'll be like, oh, this is a peptide. It's often like an alphabet soup of just letters and numbers. And you're like, what is that? Yeah. Yeah. So they have, they often have a name and then like a chemical formula or whatever. So Ricky Garrard, when he popped a few years back, he popped for I think it's called Carterine. It's like GW50156 or something like that. Um, uh, but there's been numerous times where masters especially, but mm-hmm. other people in regionals or whatever they call it now had popped for some substance. So mm-hmm. it's different from an anabolic steroid in that anabolic steroids are a class three drug. So they're controlled. Mm-hmm. Um, you can get them through a prescription. Yeah, they're pharmaceuticals. They're pharmaceuticals. Yeah. And they have FDA approval for certain things. Mm-hmm. So even though they're a, they're a controlled substance, they're not illegal. You know, mm-hmm. if you are going through cancer therapy, they might put you on an mm-hmm. anabolic steroid or whatever. So but taking them without a doctor's prescription is, is illegal. illegal. Yeah. yeah. So peptides are in this weird sort of like gray area where they haven't been approved by the FDA. Mm-hmm. They're not a out, pharmaceutical. They're not a pharmaceutical. They are out there and you can buy them, but when you buy them, they're for research purposes only. Mm -hmm. They don't actually, you're not allowed to actually take them for yourself, but if you have a pet rat that you want (laughs) to give peptides to, they're like, maybe your rat will enjoy this peptide. So it's this really weird gray area where you can buy them and it's fine. Not quite a supplement. Yeah. Not quite a prescription drug. What even is this? The weird thing about them is a lot of them are injectable. They're not just orally taken. So you can get, there's some that are oral and then some are injectable. So as soon as you hear injectable, people are often like, what the hell? And they kind of freak out a little bit. Mm -hmm. But basically what a peptide is, is 
It's like a group of amino acids, at least two, but up to 50. And basically what it does is you inject it or you swallow it or whatever, and it goes into your system and it'll stimulate different processes in your body. So it's different from a hormone in that if I take testosterone, it's testosterone and that's what's in my body, right? And you can go into super physiological doses. Mm -hmm. So those monstrous bodybuilder guys do not have normal levels of testosterone. They have like five to 10 times as much. Because they've added extra from outside. So when you do that, your natural processes shut down. Mm -hmm. So you aren't making any more of your own testosterone because you're taking it from a little jar. Peptides, on the other hand, basically only top things up, right? Like they will stimulate you to maybe produce more testosterone, but you're still limited by how much you naturally could, right? You have a genetic limit, a genetic potential, Um, And it just stimulates you to help get you to that full amount. Mm -hmm. Um, And then any leftover uh, extra peptides that aren't able to be used, you just excrete them and Mm -hmm. they just go away. So you can't really overdose on it like you can with testosterone and get these like massive gains. As far as like research goes, from what I could find, there's research that they work. It's just not going to be nearly as effective as testosterone or growth hormone like the actual hormone itself but a lot of people are super into it because a you can buy them and they're legal technically but then there's a peptide for everything there's ones that help with fat loss and there's ones that help with sleep and there's ones that help with joint repair and there's ones that help with muscle repair and there's ones that help increase your hormone levels and all kinds of stuff there's even one called melanotone or something like that melanotan that helps you tan so you inject it (laughs) And it turns you dark from the inside. It doesn't, you don't require any sunlight. You just tan from the inside. It's pretty crazy. Increases production of melanin as the sun would. So yeah. it stimulates the same process that the sun would. Yeah. So, so I think, I think it's, it's one of those things where people hear about it and it sounds like this magic cure all, but mm-hmm. it's not like there is risk of side effects. They're much more rare than if you were to take steroids because with steroids you're like shutting down your own processes and you're usually taking like more than you would naturally make on your own these ones there's still risks they're just much lower but the tough thing is is because there's not really a lot of like science behind it there's no real studies to rely on you kind of just have to try it and be like yeah it works for me or it doesn't work for me Mm -hmm. so it's it's a weird world that it's like really gaining popularity Mm -hmm. what's funny is i was like okay like what what do these things cost So I go on and you can find them easily. There's tons of websites that sell them. They're like as expensive or more than doing steroids. So some people take them to like help with their growth hormone levels. And it's like more expensive to do that than it is to just take growth hormone, you know? And growth hormone is going to be more effective than taking the peptides. But I think it's just because peptides are like a new thing that's not frowned upon yet. So people are more likely to do it. Mm -hmm. So yeah, I don't know. It's one of those things where I've heard lots of people taking them and mm-hmm. cool i mean do what you got to do there's always people out there on the internet just like cowboy and things yeah. for themselves and that's because they're this kind of gray market thing they're not quite a supplement they're not a pharmaceutical you don't really know the quality or quantity of what you're getting mm-hmm. from wherever you bought these things on the internet yeah. so while they're not technically illegal they are banned in sport and yeah. like you said we've seen many CrossFit athletes, especially masters athletes. Masters athletes are some dirty, dirty motherfuckers. <laughs> <laughs> They're taking all they can get. They're always the ones that are popping for the hormones and the yeah. peptides and stuff. So maybe because because they're not illegal, people don't realize that they are on yeah. the banned substance list. So if you were 
under any kind of doping control, you'd certainly not want to be dabbling in that kind of stuff. Yeah. But then, yeah, just the category of like peptide, like the definition of a peptide is just a small chain of amino acids. Yeah. That doesn't really mean anything. Two to 50. So like collagen is a peptide. Yeah. What's in my moisturizer has peptides. Like all these, they're just little, if they get bigger than 50 amino acids, then we just call them a protein. So mm-hmm. they're just little pieces of proteins essentially that can be used, like you said, for all kinds of things. So. Yeah. And the theory is, is that the smaller molecules are easily more easily used and can stimulate things better than full proteins that have to be like broken down and turned into pieces. Mm-hmm. So yeah, it's kind of, it's one of those worlds where there's research that shows that they're effective, but mm-hmm. it's mostly just people cowboying and trying to figure it out. And yeah. you go on YouTube and you can find anybody who's, Oh yeah, this seems great. And it healed my shoulder and whatever. And yeah, maybe some of these longevity billionaires that yeah. are sharing their, what they're doing to try to you know live to 150 years yeah. old. And it's these like elaborate, out there schemes and super expensive and stuff, but they're like, well, somebody's got to try it, I yeah, guess. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. It's just, I, I think the thing that would freak a lot of people out is the whole like injectable thing. You know, that's a, a weird world to get into where mm-hmm. you're starting to pin yourself or whatever they call it. <laughs> Injecting yourself with stuff you got on the internet seems yeah. like a line a lot that's, of people don't want to cross. It's a weird line to cross. So yeah, peptides. Okay, so that's about as much as we know about peptides. Yeah, definitely not an expert. Um, if, you, if you want more, it's readily available on the internet. Good luck on the internet. Good luck out there. That would be about it. Okay, next question. Someone threw this one at me. This was from a person that is tracking their food for the first time ever with the intention of trying to eat enough. So felt like they were always like busy and under eating, would like to get more benefit out of the exercise they do, put on a little bit of muscle. So trying to eat enough. Right. And so they said between trying to hit just a calorie target in the day or trying to hit the protein target in terms of like gains, basically, which one of those two things would be more important? So if you're kind of at the nearing the end of the day and you're like, ah, I didn't eat enough. I was too busy today. Should you be like doing shooters of olive oil or should you be just like eating that steak or that yeah. bowl of ground beef or whatever it is? It's a good question for sure. Yeah. I think if we're talking about like on a single day, the protein target is much more important in terms of stimulating muscle growth and not all protein is created equal. So we're not talking about like the gluten in the bread that you ate or incomplete protein in the beans. That stuff doesn't count at all. Mm. Really what you need is leucine. It's a particular amino acid that stimulates something called mTOR, mammalian target of rapamycin. It's basically a growth factor. And so if you're trying to grow, you need to stimulate your growth factors. Leucine is very deficient in plant foods, really highly found in good amounts in animal foods. So if you're trying to grow muscle and you're busy, at the very least, try to hit your protein targets from good quality animal foods, eggs, seafood, meat, dairy, that kind of stuff. Overall, on a week or month basis, you do need to have adequate calories so that your body can also be in a metabolic state of growth and not like conservation and that sort of thing. So on a longer term scale, you do need to make sure you're just overall eating enough calories to sustain exercise and growth. But If you've taken Nutrition 101, my free course that's available on CrossFit Brio and in the app, you know one of my crimes against nutrition is like trying to hit some arbitrary macro target by doing shooters of olive oil at night, like right before bed. You're like, gotta get my fat grams in or eating gummy bears because you're like, gotta hit my carb target. That shit is ridiculous. Yeah. Don't bother with any of that stuff. Just if you are going to prioritize something in the day, make sure it's protein overall make sure you plan well enough to just eat enough food. Right. Because your body doesn't have this, <clears throat> excuse me, magical clock that resets every 24 hours, right? It's it's like weekly, monthly, yearly. You know, if you're 
overall eating more food, mm-hmm. you're going to slowly gain weight. If you're overall eating less food, you're going to slowly lose weight. It's not 24 hours and you've lost all your potential. Sense. And if anything, if you're trying to pound these macros right before bed, yeah, it makes your sleep worse, which makes your growth worse because yeah. most of your growth and repair happens during sleep and it, you secrete the most growth hormone during deep sleep. So if you're busy digesting because you ate all this food right before you went to bed, you're actually impairing your growth hormone release because you're not getting as much deep sleep. So yeah, um, yeah, no need to try to cram in all the cows if it's like a late night decision. Just try to hit like a protein minimum for the day and then do better the next day. Right. Plan ahead. Try to get out ahead of that problem earlier in the day so it's not 11 p.m. and you're like, oh no, yeah. <laughs> I have to eat 600 calories before bed. And I think the easy trend to notice is if you're trying to gain weight and you're not, you're just not eating enough food. Yeah. You're burning more than you're eating. And over time, it's just not happening for you. So you can't just eat more food. You have to make sure you're getting your protein in because like you said, that's what stimulates the growth and everything. Mm-hmm. Cows versus protein. Prioritize protein, but get enough cows. <clears throat> How about let's go to this one next. We've both been asked this separately. How often do you work out? Yeah. Never. <laughs> <laughs> that, there was a time where there that was, was true. <laughs> There's been many times where that happened where I got too busy doing a project or something and just got lazy and didn't work out at all. But now, yeah. now that I'm 45, got one foot in the grave. I don't work out nearly as much as I used to. I work out for sure three times a week, but usually three to five. Mm -hmm. Try to never go more than five. And that's because every time I have, I hurt myself or feel like shit or just get banged up and can't work out for a few days. So I shouldn't say hurt myself because it's not bad. It's just I need to take a few extra days off. So, so far what I've been doing lately is I will, because the question often goes, what do you do as well? Because we have the ability to pick and choose what workouts we do and we have a garage gym, but I still try to follow our programming Mm -hmm. as as much as I can. So generally what I'll do is I'll pick one to three, depending on the week workouts where I'm going to do the wad and I'm going to probably try to RX the wad. The ones I avoid RXing are the ones where I know they're going to be problematic movements for me, like pistols. Pistols are just real hard on my knees, and I just don't have the time to invest in, like, making that better. Mm-hmm. And for the, like, importance of a pistol, it's just, meh, not really worth it for me. Yeah. So I avoid those types of workouts to RX. I will scale the shit out of them. I'll do lunges and whatever instead. Mm-hmm. Um, but then I'll try to pick, like, two to three wads that I'll do for sure, and then I'll usually try to lift two to three times a a week as well. Sometimes I'll do both on one day and then sometimes I'll just lift one day or just do the water or whatever. But then definitely after three days, I'll take a rest day. He asked me this just around the end of the year and I was like, you know what, I'm going to look. I looked and be on the whiteboard and I had logged, it averaged out to just under three days a week. Yeah. And so I was like, okay, well, to be fair, I know there was like a few workouts I did when I was at seminars and stuff that I didn't put in be on the whiteboard. So call it three days a week, probably not four. Yeah. (laughs) So I log like CrossFit style workouts three days a week, which is not a lot. And sometimes people go, oh, like you seem fitter than a person that works out three <laughs> days a week, which thank you. But my baseline level of activity is very high, yeah. right? So just coaching CrossFit, I do a ton of PVC reps and stretches and squats and all that kind of stuff just in my daily life. I, we've got this step challenge going on right now in January. I've been wearing my aura ring for five years. I've averaged just under 15,000 steps a day for five years. So I just, my average level of activity is quite high. Right. So then on top of that baseline of lots of general daily movement, not a lot of sitting, I, you know, in terms of, I follow the Brio program. I don't do anything else. 
other than when I'm at a seminar, we always work out at lunchtime and we usually just pick a CrossFit.com workout. So that's the only time I'm ever off the Brio program is if I'm somewhere else. Mm -hmm. So I always try to do something heavy. I usually try to get the squats in every week. It doesn't always happen on Tuesdays because I coach all morning on Tuesdays. But at some point in the week, I try to get the squats done or squeeze it in between the classes. I try to pick something like heavy or high skill, I guess, like movements I'm not good at, like pull-ups. I'm really trying to put some work into my pull-ups and bar muscle-ups and things I kind of suck at. So I try to pick like a, a weakness that I'm trying to be consistent at hitting that thing. And then I'll pick something that I like scale the shit out of and try to just go really hard and try to hit really high intensity. So yeah. I touch intensity every week, but in different ways by like heavy, by going really fast, and then by choosing a level of difficulty of something I'm not good at. Right. And then if I have more time and I can fit in other ones, great. But it works out too, about three days a week. I'm trying to make my life a little less chaotic, which is probably not going to be successful this semester until I'm done school yeah. and try to actually get into classes more instead of just fitting in my workouts between classes and that sort of thing. Cause it really is way more fun and I work harder and it's better. Yeah. Warmups are better when I'm in the classes and I enjoy taking the classes from all of our coaches and stuff. So yeah, yeah I guess, you know, three days a week, Yeah, but I'm going to try to make that more. I yeah. think I would benefit if it was closer to four or five for sure. Yeah. I would say three is three is probably not enough for most people, but like you said, because we're in the gym so often and doing a lot of accessory movement and stuff, then, mm -hmm. you know, we can kind of get away with a little bit, but for me anyways, like I do best around four to five on average. Usually if I have three, it's because I'm busy that week or something has gotten in the way. Mm -hmm. So yeah. Yeah. Okay. So here's another one. I'd like to lose a bit of little bit of weight. Should I run more on yeah. my days off? So this is kind of the opposite of question number two. <laughs> yeah. First guy wants to gain. This person wants to lose. Yeah. So I want to take a few of these, you know, maybe Christmas LBs off. Should I just run more to lose weight? Yeah. Super, super common that people equate weight loss with what they think is increasing caloric expenditure through long, slow distance cardio type stuff. Here's one of the most difficult things to wrap your head around. Yeah. Increasing your activity level does not increase your overall caloric expenditure. I know. And it's you're the like, weirdest thing to wrap your head around. Jocelyn, what the <laughs> fuck are you saying? How on earth can that be true? Well, the work of Herman Ponzer, and he wrote a book called Burn. You can also read his, he's done several groundbreaking published papers, but he also wrote a book for the lay public about caloric expenditure. He goes to the Hadza tribe in Africa and uses a technique called doubly labeled water to keep track of how many calories they're taking in and expending. He does the same thing with sedentary Americans, goes to various places around the world. So what he finds with the Hadza, who are five times more physically active, like in terms of steps per day or however you want to quantify it, than the average sedentary American, they burn, get ready for it, the exact same number of calories on average per day. Yeah. It's, a it's right around 3,000. And you're like, what? So beyond a baseline of being bedridden, so assuming you're like moving around at least a little bit, your body just burns the same number of calories. If you increase the allocation of those calories to exercise on purpose, your body just spends less calories on something else. Mm -hmm. And you're like, motherfucker. <laughs> <laughs> and anybody who's tried to lose weight by running or not to be mean, but anybody who's been at the finish line of a half marathon or a marathon can tell you that running is not the cure for those extra 20 pounds on you. Yeah. So, but here, that's not a bad thing because the first thing your body spends less energy on when you exercise is your stress response. So that's why exercise is so, so, so beneficial. 
is because it downregulates your anxiety and your anger and your stress hormones and all those kinds of things that people struggle with. So that's probably why the average sedentary American who needs to dispose of these calories in some way or another is struggling so much mentally because they need to spend more calories on physical movement instead of stress. So that's where exercise fits in as a super, super important part of your health. And for lots of other reasons too. Joint health and cardiovascular health and all these other sorts of things. But in terms of weight loss, exercise is not it. Yeah. Sorry. It's it's a super weird thing. And I, I encourage everybody to read the book because it just, I like, I've been in this world forever and it yeah. just seems impossible. It just seems like there's no way that would be real. And I was even doubting the effectiveness of the doubly label. I was like, maybe the doubly labeled water is not real. Nope. But then everybody <laughs> says it's, as accurate as being in like one of those chambers, metabolic, things, ward, metabolic yeah. ward. So it's really pretty mind blowing to think about it. And a lot of people are going to have a hard time wrapping their heads around this one, but like yeah. the science is there and it supports it. It is what it is. So basically, yeah, it's if I increase my activity and don't increase my food to support that, my body will just use energy from other systems to, to pay to do that. Yeah. And and it takes a few days. Like they said in the book that for the first day or two, you might burn some extra calories just mm-hmm. to fuel the exercise. But as a long-term strategy, it doesn't work. It doesn't work at all. You have to eat the foods that encourage your body to feel satiated and feel like it has enough of the nutrient status that it can allow weight to come off. Mm-hmm. So it's more about the food intake than it is the exercise mm-hmm. output. Yep. So a a normal amount of exercise, when you spend calories on that, you spend less calories on your stress response. If you start to over-exercise because you're like, God damn it, I need to, now I have to burn a thousand calories instead of 500 to try to get these LBs off. Yeah. Well, now your body starts to, it's got all these dials it can turn and it can start to turn down other things like your body temperature. Yeah. So low body temperature is a a super common symptom of, of overtraining. Metabolic adaptation just literally are burning less calories your immune system, your immune system is tremendously metabolically expensive. So when you overtrain, you tend to get sick more. When the Tour de France athletes exert an enormous number of calories over the course of that race for, you know, days and days on end, they almost always are super sick at the end of it because their immune system is just trashed. Your body will start to break down metabolically expensive tissue like bone and muscle because you just don't want to carry around extra stuff that burns more fuel. So that's not good. Yeah. So even if you, you know, did shift the weight on the scale a little bit, you don't want to lose muscle. You're trying to lose fat. Yeah. And then other non-essential processes like, like you mentioned, fertility will go down, especially in females, but in males too. So you'll notice like mood changes in response to like lower sex hormones and that kind of stuff. Women will lose their periods because, you know, basically nature is saying, Ooh, this is not a good time to have a baby. This is a very like stressful situation. So, and, and we all know those things that those are obvious adaptations of overtraining, but the, the reason those things are happening in the face of, of overtraining is because your body's just bouncing your caloric expenditure. Yep. So you can cause a weight shift, like a temporary, like you said, a day or two. And, you know, even like really white knuckle it for a few weeks or even 90 days or something. And you can shift your weight. But if we're talking about weight loss, as in bye, never see you again, doesn't just bounce back mm-hmm. <laughs> immediately when your body rebounds, then you have to shift your fuel partitioning, which is what you're talking about. And that happens through basically like changing hormonal status in your body and Stephen Guillenay's book, actually, some of what's happening at the level of appetite regulation in the hypothalamus in the brain. Right. And so that happens through food. Yeah. So no, you cannot 
run more to lose weight on your days off. It does not work like that. Yeah. Sorry. Unfortunately. It's funny. I, you know, I, I'm pretty stable with my body weight. When I eat a big meal, I always get cold afterwards. And it's like my body is using energy to digest my food and it's taking it from my, my little furnace. And so I get like really chilly after eating afterwards. That's weird how it just like takes and pushes to make things work. That's pretty common actually because your more of your blood volume goes to your digestive system and is pulled out of the periphery. There you go. Yeah. But if you do have a, a well-functioning metabolism and you ate a really big meal, you often will find for like a day or two that you're just warmer and less hungry and your body is trying to get rid of excess calories too. So yeah. a well, a good lipostat, they call it, like a well-functioning metabolism that just likes to stay at a healthy level, gets rid of excess calories just in the same way that it conserves when there's not enough too. Yeah. So your body should be your friend, should be on side with you as long as you give it the right inputs. It'll do what you want. Yeah. I watched this YouTuber guy. He's like a competitive eater. It's called Beard versus Food, if you ever want to check him out. But he goes around and does these competitions where he'll consume these like massive amounts of food. Like it's enough food for four people. And he's the skinny guy. And people people are like, how the hell is that possible? But it's like he has a healthy metabolism. So he says he doesn't throw up afterwards, but you never know. But leading up to it, he'll be, he said all he'll have is like yogurt and fruit. He'll have like just a little bit of yogurt and fruit for a couple of days afterward first. And then afterwards he'll fast for two days. Like he just won't eat anything at all. So, you know, he doesn't need to because his body was like overwhelmed with food and doesn't need to, he's not hungry for two days afterwards. So everything just kind of like balances out and he just stays the same, even though he's eating like 10 or 15,000 calories in one sitting. Yeah. I guess a follow-up question to what we had sort of on the flip side was like, my watch says I burned 500 calories in that workout. Should I increase my caloric intake that day by 500 calories because I worked out? And so that's more from the perspective of the person that's trying to like gain weight gain, and yeah. go, you know, basically asking, did I really burn more calories because my watch said I burned more calories? And again, wah, wah, the answer is no. Yeah. So if you're trying to gain muscle, then you're just trying to hit your protein target and overall make sure you're eating enough or maybe slightly above um, a calorie goal overall. Mm-hmm. Um, and then if you're trying to lose weight, you change your diet there too until you get the desired outcome. Yeah. Yeah. Um, okay. Here's one. <laughs> My wife and I watched you are why you eat on Netflix. And now we're feeling like we should stop eating meat or at least we should eat less red. meat. <laughs> oh, Netflix. <sighs> and my response to that in the gym at the time was do not do that. Do not be stupid and gullible to propaganda on Netflix. Do not do that. <laughs> but maybe that was mean. <laughs> I don't know. You don't need to call people stupid. <laughs> I didn't say, oh, I did say don't be. Yeah. Okay. Is, is saying don't be stupid calling somebody stupid? I'm sort of saying like it would be stupid Mm. of you if you were (laughs) manipulated by vegan propaganda on Netflix. I I do, you would be stupid if that was, yeah. So the main main thing about this study, who is it funded by? Okay, so You Are What You Eat is a four-part series on Netflix. They made a documentary that's supposed to be about this twin study that was conducted by a researcher named Chris Gardner. Chris Gardner himself is a vegan, so there's always an ideological bias based on the person that's conducting the study. In the study, and you can go read it, and actually as soon as it came out, one of my friends sent it to me and was like, what is wrong with the methodology here based on the conclusions that they came up with? Mm -hmm. So they took 21 or 22 pairs of twins, which is cool. So you're taking out the genetic variability, identical twins, 
And for eight weeks, they feed one an omnivorous diet and trying to do whole food, you know, not processed food. And they feed the other one a vegan, plant-based, whole food diet. And then they track some things. And what they come out with is, oh, the vegan diet's so amazing. For sure, it's the best one. Which anybody that knows anything knows that's not the case, but they can kind of do this like magic trick of, of what happens. So Chris Gardner, and it says in the study, is funded by Beyond Meat. Weird. <laughs> Weird. The company that makes the fake vegan replacement, you know, soy slop burgers or whatever. The vegan doctor was able to get funding from the vegan company. Yeah. Weird. So if you have this bias and you have this financial incentive to find the type of result that you want, and you're going to set up a study to get the result that you want, how would you do it? So there, you would focus on certain things. It's well known that a lower fat vegan diet reduces LDL cholesterol, LDLC. It's highly contentious whether that matters at all. LDLC is not a good, reliable, or predictable marker of cardiovascular disease risk, despite the fact that people call it the bad cholesterol. There's way better markers out there that predict cardiovascular disease risk with much better accuracy. One of them being your HDL to triglyceride ratio. So the ratio of your good cholesterol to the fatty acids, the triglycerides floating around in your blood. The ratio of those two things is much more important. Even just a straight up like waist to hip measurement or fasting insulin, HbA1c or measure of your average blood glucose over the last 90 days, lots of different things. You ignore all of those other ones. You don't report those ones and you only focus on the one that you know is going to go down or improve on the vegan diet. So that's what they did. They had data on the other ones and they just, they kind of gloss over and don't report them. The HDL to triglyceride ratio gets worse in the vegan group, despite the fact that their LDLC does go down but their HDL also goes down and their triglycerides go up. But you ignore that and you only focus on LDLC. You know the vegan diet, especially on the short term, is probably going to make people lose weight. But you also know that most of that weight is going to be muscle mass because of the lack of protein in the diet. So you don't report body composition. You only report weight loss. Mm-hmm. So the But what's interesting in the documentary, they do actually report the body composition data. So that means they had it, but it's not in the study. So that when they were first setting up the study, that was one of the things they were going to track. Yeah. But then they didn't report on it. But it's it. not in, in the paper. So it's they just not left the it out. They just leave it out of the paper. Right. So you only track body weight. So the vegan diet, the vegan group loses more weight on the scale. But the body composition data that's reported in the documentary on Netflix, I can't believe they even showed it because it actually makes it look much worse. Mm. They lose majority muscle and some fat, whereas the omnivorous group loses majority fat and gains muscle. Right. So they lose fat but gain muscle so it looks like their weight loss is, is very little because it is very little but they lost more fat but also gained some muscle in 8 right. weeks. So, so from that, a body composition perspective the omnivorous diet outperforms hands down. Right. Whereas the vegan diet starts to make you in 8 weeks you're on the path to sarcopenia, you're losing your muscle mass. And the people that are just obsessed with the number on the scale are going to gloss over the fact that you know, maybe you lost six pounds, but five pounds of that was muscle. And then the other group only lost two pounds, but it was all fat. Mm-hmm. You know, they're going to gloss that over and be like, well, six pounds is better than two pounds. Like, well, no, you don't want to yeah. lose five pounds of muscle and one pound of fat. You want to lose <laughs> two pounds of fat. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. We also know that vegan diets are um, atrociously nutrient deficient and many, many nutrients of concern, B12 mm-hmm. being the primary one, because the problems of B12 deficiency primarily neurological, are irreversible. Right. So that's a huge concern. And there are no plant sources of B12. And even if you supplement B12 on a plant-based diet, 
often there's problems with absorption due to low stomach acid and due to an inability to make something called intrinsic factor, which is like a binding protein that you need to be able to absorb B12. So even if you're taking a B12 supplement, you are definitely not in the clear. Somewhere between 70 and 90% of vegan and vegetarians are B12 deficient. So super dangerous. And how long was the study? Eight weeks. So here's another thing. If you're going to design a vegan versus omnivore study, you make it short. Because you can't extend a timeline and start to see any of these major nutrient deficiencies. Because you can kind of store enough in your system Mm -hmm. to to sort of... About three to four months. There you go. So you stop the study before that. But so what they report in the discussion of the study is there was no significant difference in B12 between the two groups at the end of eight weeks. I went into the data, the actual data tables, and what you find is that the vegan group had higher B12 at the start. So they were like 570 and the omnivorous group was like four something. The omnivorous group just stays the same. Their B12 is unchanged. But the vegan group, their B12 drops by 20% in eight weeks. So now they're the same. But in the discussion, they write, there's no significant difference between levels of B12 at the end of eight weeks, which Mm -hmm. is True, but super misleading right. because that group started with higher B12 levels. So if in it, eight weeks, yeah. you're seeing a serious nutrient deficiency start to manifest. And if you would have carried that on for 12 or 16 weeks, it would have dropped even further. I mean, presumably that's yeah. what happens, right? And that's why B12 is such an issue. Right. So yes, there's many methodological errors with the way this thing is set up. There's many... I don't know, hand-waving magic tricks in the discussion and what parts of the of what's measured get presented. So this is certainly not a well-designed or unbiased study, and it's certainly not the kind of thing that should leave you being like, wow, I think we should definitely eat less meat. Yeah. And a lot of the documentary on Netflix actually doesn't even discuss the study itself. It's much more of the like, oh, like ethical stuff or environmental stuff associated with meat, which is like a whole other can of worms in and of itself. And if you want to open up that can of worms, sacred cow. Yeah. Watch sacred cow because that answers a lot of those questions on the actual real environmental impact and Mm -hmm. how regenerative farming is so much better than, you know, any kind of mass mass production, agricultural or Mm -hmm. mass farming or whatever. So, yeah. It's definitely not the type of thing and nor should you ever just see one thing and just be like, well, I'm just going to change my life for this one thing, right? Mm-hmm. Like do your research and look into it more and try to find the like imperfections of the information and try to see the other side first. And then once you've educated yourself, then you can start to make decisions. But And it's common tactics and you start yeah. to see the common things. You're like, oh, I know almost certainly before I even open this thing, what they're going to do. They're going to focus on LDLC like it matters. They're going to report body weight, not body composition. You know, they're going to maybe stack the groups or they're going to make the study short enough that they're not going to expose any of the problems. And you're like, yada, 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 same old, same old. And then they're going to go, whoa, the mm-hmm. vegan diet's better. And you're like, because there's plenty, on. like, there's some vitamins and stuff. Like, you, you have like a six month reserve in your body, yeah. right? And then a yeah. lot of people will go on a vegan diet. And the, for the first six, we, six weeks or six months, sorry, they're like, oh my God, I feel better than I ever have. This is amazing. I feel mm-hmm. great. I'm losing weight. I'm getting whatever. And then that sort of like, threshold hits where all of a sudden they've run out of nutrients and then they're just like (laughs) oh my god i can't do this anymore i feel like garbage and what changed what happened well you just ran out of your surplus you know ran out of your supply and anybody that changes from a processed food diet to any kind of whole foods diet is going to feel better for the first little while. well maybe you feel worse for a short period of time and then better for a bit as you start eating real food but then like you said the nutrient deficiencies will start to manifest and the common ones are um iron 
There's very few bioavailable plant sources of iron. You start to run low on amino acids, particularly leucine, lysine, and methionine. You need those to build proteins. Once you've run through your available stores, you start to break down muscle mass. So you start to get weaker. Performance in the gym goes down. Neurotransmitter function tends to go down because both dopamine and serotonin are made from amino acids. That serotonin is made from tryptophan, which is hard to find in plant foods. You need nutrients like B12 and B9 and B6 and zinc and iron to, to make all those conversions to turn tryptophan into serotonin and into melatonin. So brain fog, irritability, inability to control your emotions, like emotional outbursts are pretty common reports. Digestive issues, low stomach acid, inability to incorporate proteins properly, lots of like gas and bloating and digestion, declining muscle mass and strength. Over time, bone mass declines substantially just because of the lack of protein and vitamin K2, lack of calcium often as well. So mm-hmm. multiple things start a to go off the roof. A slew of stuff starts yep. to go wrong. So definitely don't feel pressured by by the Netflix propaganda and definitely don't do that to your kids. Yeah, <laughs> There are developmental windows that if they're missed with important animal foods are irreversible. Bone density and muscle mass and certain brain development windows that if kids aren't fed properly... It, there's no opportunity to do that again. Right. So don't do that to your kids. Yep. So there you go. Here's my soapbox. I'm going to get off my soapbox now. <laughs> just don't, I mean, just don't believe everything you see on Netflix for sure. Yeah. Um, okay. Where do we want to go next? One more. One more. Last one. What should I do on days off? Oh. Which is a good question yeah. because we're encouraging people to work out like four, five, maybe six days tops. Six isn't great. Don't do that. So what do we do when we're not working out? Right. Cause we were the type of people that like to stay active and like to be busy. And often people are like, well, I'll just work out seven days in a row. I'll just take it easy on that seventh day. Mm-hmm. So what's a better alternative to doing that? Um, okay. So a big fan of general daily movement. And I think you should prioritize, you know, we're doing our 10,000 steps a day challenge right now. You should prioritize that before you make your habit of getting to the gym. I think it's much more important that you just move around a lot mm-hmm. than it is to make it in for an hour long class two to five times a week. So you got to move around a lot, lots of walks. We were big on the rocking thing this summer on your day off, you know, throw on a backpack or weight vest and just go walk around, be outside, move yep. around a little bit. Great for recovery and circulation. I found all the rocking really helpful on my back. Yeah. My back seems so much stronger. My squats got stronger from doing that. And then the one I usually tell people and nobody wants to hear. This is the worst is answer. Stretching. Stretching. <laughs> Guess what? You should stretch your business. Yeah. It's, it's one of those. Ugh. I remember K-Star who's, you know, he's the big mobility guy. Mm-hmm. Being like, this is the least sexy thing. I'm like the least sexy guy. You've got your like powerlifting dude and you've got your strongman guy. You've got your gymnastics guy. And he's like, I'm the stretching guy. And he's like, that's not cool. Nobody wants to stretch. You can't PR your stretch. But it's one of those things that I would say 90% of people, 95% of people are greatly limited in the gym because of your your flexibility issues. There's, yep. there's a few people like I'll, I'll throw Brittany out there because she's the bendiest person I've ever seen in my life. <laughs> she's a dancer. She right? is not limited by her flexibility whatsoever. Yeah. She, she doesn't need to do extra stretching probably, but she still enjoys to do it. Mm-hmm. So great. But it's one of those things that you can do at home. You can go to a yoga class, you know, you can, you can get out of the house and do it if you want to. It's a nice like restorative practice that goes along with it does. We did just did an episode on intensity, right? And so if we're running headlong towards intensity, one of the things we need to do to do some movements at intensity is make positions. We need mm. to be able to make shapes with our body at in the right way. And we have to be able to do them slowly first and then yeah. faster and heavier. So if you can't squat properly, 
even slow and even with no weight, you have work to do before you can add intensity to that movement. And the work is the mobility. For sure. Or snatches or muscle ups or take your pick or pull ups or doesn't matter, hanging from a bar. If you need to stretch your business so that you can make the right shapes so that you can go heavier so that you can go faster, that's a step towards intensity. And if you're the type of person that will never do things on their own, then for sure go out to a yoga class or we we have our like Ramwad times mm-hmm. that we let people come in and follow the thing on the TV or even better still, hopefully Nick will do more of these in the future. But Nick's mobility stretching yeah, class that, that awesome. we did was like, it was a next level of stretching. It was yeah. hard. It was really, really good. I was like sore in weird oh, ways man. after it was good. Yeah. It, it's just a different way of stretching that you don't really know how to do it without guidance. So it's nice having Nick, who's a physio, taking you through it. There's some apps and things like yeah. GoWad and Pliability that you can subscribe to to do on your own if you like a little bit of structure and being told what to do. Yeah. GoWad, I haven't really played with it, but they do like an assessment, I think. Yeah, and I think they like assign you things that you need to work on, which is kind of cool. I think Customize you enter well. in, yeah, where where you're limited and they'll kind of just like mm-hmm. AI generate a thing. That, the robots or yeah, something. Yeah, the tell robots you what to make do. you. I'm going to throw something else in what you should do on your days off. How about meal prep? Yeah, there you go. How about make your, set yourself up for success? If you take Sundays off, why not uh, throw some things in the oven and the slow cooker and yep. have some ready meals to go in the fridge and the freezer? Abs are made in the kitchen. Right? Abs are made in the kitchen. <laughs> right. And that doesn't mean doing sit-ups in the kitchen. Yeah. That cooking good, healthy cooking food. good food in the kitchen. Yeah. It's pretty much at the point now where you have to cook your own food. If you're going to have yeah. any chance at being healthy in the long term, you just, you have to have, figure out a way to cook most of your own food. I don't remember if it was 35 or 40 but I know I reached a certain age where all of a sudden I just had to pay way more attention to my food. I kind yeah. of got over this threshold where it's like I could get away with some garbage a couple of times a week, two, three, four times a week. And I was like, eh, kind of just stay the same. Yeah. And now, like even once a week, it's like, eh, I'm not where I want to be. You know? <laughs> yeah. And <clears throat> the biggest change that we made that had the most impact is that I used to love going out for dinner. That's, you know, just something I've always enjoyed. And I would want to do it frequently. And now we just never do. If we're on holiday or something, we will. But other than that, we rarely ever go out for dinner. Mm-hmm. Even if we have a cheat day, we'll still do our own stuff here. Yeah. Yeah, we're much better about like cooking from scratch. That was something we developed during COVID, I think. Yeah. Cooking, even like our treat stuff, but make it from scratch. If you want cookies, you like make them. If you yeah. want cheesecake, figure out how to make a cheesecake. Like, and it's funny because my tastes have changed. I think I talked about this on a different podcast, but like we, we went down to the States and we had cookies. I could barely eat them. They were yeah. so sweet. I just couldn't even handle how sweet they were. And so I remember wanting to make peanut butter cookies with the boys and I was like looking at the amount of sugar and I was like I don't know I think I can do this with less and I did and they they tasted good like it was still fine so you can really control you know even if you're having something bad you can control how bad it is Mm -hmm. and make it like still desirable yeah okay so thanks for the questions yeah keep them coming we will enjoy discussing things that come out of your brains for the rest of this season this year so yeah hit us up in person we'll try to like make little notes of them or comment on this podcast below. And you know what else helps us out? I know everybody says this, but give this podcast a like and a subscribe on YouTube. That helps other people find it. Yep. And if you thought something we said was interesting, send it to a friend. There you go. Yeah. All right. Well, we'll see you in the next one. Thanks guys. Thanks.